Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. Welcome to Macquarie Street, the political podcast coming from the crucible of Australian democracy, where responsible government in the antipodes started 200 years ago. I'm Lyle Shelton from the Christian Democratic Party, and our mission is to keep government in Australia responsible by raising up strong Christian voices to go into Parliament. Now, the historic New South Wales Parliament is debating historic legislation as we speak. The radical leftist MP Alex Greenwich introduced his voluntary assisted dying bill 2021 into the Legislative Assembly this week. Voluntary assisted dying is, of course, a euphemism for euthanasia. It's not clear whether Greenwich has the numbers but an all-out propaganda campaign has begun. Now, please hear me clearly. Most people who support euthanasia do so out of genuine compassion and good faith. But my concern is that Australians are confused about what euthanasia is. They support it, but don't understand its dangers. And these are never discussed by the mainstream media. That's why I've spoken at length this week with end-of-life healthcare expert, and GP, Dr. David Van Gend. He also happens to be a good friend and fellow culture war warrior. I also talk with the young face of the pro-life movement, Joseph and Sevier, university students staffing the Right to Life New South Wales vigil outside Macquarie Street this week. These might be challenging days for pro-lifers, but you'll be encouraged in the knowledge that no matter how tough things get, a new generation is determined to keep up the fight. You won't want to miss uh, that interview, nor my discussion with Dr. David Van Gend, both coming up a little later in the show. But first, Dominic Perrottet is the new New South Wales Premier, replacing Gladys Berejiklian, who resigned after the Independent Commission Against Corruption said it was investigating her over issues of public trust. Conservatives and Christians are rejoicing that someone who shares our values is in the top job in Macquarie Street. Many in the mainstream media, uh, particularly at the ABC, have gone into meltdown, implying it is inappropriate for a serious Catholic who is happily married with six children to hold public office. Once One gets the impression that they would rather have a transgender premier with children produced by commercial surrogacy. That would be far less controversial for the woke left. But Dominic Perrottet is pro-life and pro-natural marriage. Shock horror. But these are good things. He has always voted the right way on these issues and from time to time has advocated for them in public. But what he will do about the injustices that flow from both of these public policy issues now that he is Premier is yet to be seen. Abortion hurts mothers, trashes the human rights of the unborn and empowers men. Same-sex marriage requires some children to miss out on the love of their mother and father and has led to gender-fluid ideology plaguing our schools. Now, Ben Fordham, not... Uh, coming from a social justice perspective, asked Perrottet about his views on marriage and abortion on 2GB radio last week. For those who think their man is in control, please take a listen. So it is legal to have an abortion. It's legal to marry someone of the same sex. So can you confirm as Premier you support the right for women to have an abortion and for same-sex couples to get married? Well, Ben, I have no intention of changing the laws in, in that space. Now, I get that as Premier, Perrottet, regardless of his personal convictions, has to deal with the reality of the world as he finds it. A majority in his own Liberal Party helped lead the charge for abortion to birth laws in 2019, and many also supported redefining marriage in 2017. We're talking about Liberals here, supposedly from the Conservative side of politics. Liberals ignored the consequences of these changes to the law. The price Perrottet will pay for being Premier will be to keep quiet on these issues and certainly to not advocate for law reform. He's now told Ben Fordham that he won't. So this is where the Christian Democratic Party comes in and why strong Christian voices are needed in Parliament. The radical left and the libertarian right argued for years for change to the way uh, we think about human rights for the unborn and marriage. Their politicians then sustained debate in the parliament, in the media for years, until they brought things to a tipping point. Now, on a visit to Washington, D.C. some years ago, I met with a Christian lobbyist who had also worked in the George W. Bush White House. 
He told me that the first rule of politics is that no decision in a democracy is permanent. It might take years to unwind bad public policy, but the beauty of democracy and freedom of speech is that the opportunity exists. This explains why the left now want to resort to cancel culture to make their gains permanent. The will and the courage to fight for the unborn, the truth about marriage and freedom for faith is what uniquely uh, the CDP brings to politics. Because even with a Christian in the Premier's office, we can't rely on the Liberals. LGBTQI cultural hegemony has now invaded the children's classic comedy series, Superman. The son of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, Jonathan Kent, is about to come out in the Marvel comic series as bisexual. This is just part of the relentless indoctrination of children into homosexual concepts. For my podcast audio listeners, the image on the screen is of modern Superman Jonathan locking lips with his boyfriend. Desensitizing society and now children to homosexuality is a key strategy of political activists hell-bent on destroying the natural family and the cultural norms necessary for a healthy society. Radical sexual concepts should never feature as part of children's comics. Kids should be allowed to be kids and to retain their innocence. In fact, a civil society would demand a culture which protects children's innocence. There is plenty of time to explore the world of adults, including alternative lifestyles, when children become adults. But series writer Tom Taylor told the New York Times, the idea of replacing Clark Kent with another straight white savior felt like a missed opportunity. That's because rainbow politics demands the spread of the values of the Mardi Gras to children, no matter how young or impressionable. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a euthanasia bill has been introduced into the New South Wales Parliament by the radical leftist MP, Alex Greenwich. In this week's feature interview, my good friend, Dr. David Van Gend, an expert in palliative care, helps us understand why far from relieving suffering, euthanasia is a dangerous idea. Well, hello. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I've got a very special guest uh, joining me to discuss a topic which is running red hot at the moment here in New South Wales off the back of a recent debate in Queensland. And that's the introduction of the so-called voluntary assisted dying bill 2021 introduced by the radical leftist parliamentarian uh, here, independent member for Sydney, Alex Greenwich, who has been involved in a lot of controversial uh, social reform over the years, including same-sex marriage uh, and the New South Wales abortion to birth legislation in 2019, and now he's on to euthanasia. So joining me to discuss this is my very good friend, Dr. David Van Gend, who will be familiar to many of my viewers and listeners. But uh, for those who don't know, Dr. Van Gend is a Queensland GP. Uh, for 15 years, he's been a university lecturer in palliative medicine. So he understands this issue of euthanasia very well. He completed postgraduate training in palliative medicine at Mount Olivet Hospital in Brisbane and at Melbourne University. He served on the Queensland Health Working Group for Palliative Care in Children and has been on the Toowoomba Regional Hospital, Hospice Medical Advisory Committee for the last 18 years. He has been writing on euthanasia and lobbying MPs since the Andrews Bill came to federal parliament in 1996. Now, that was when the Northern Territory became the first jurisdiction in the world to legalise euthanasia. It was short-lived and that Andrews Bill uh, overturned the Northern Territory's bill and David was uh, key back in those days. So he's been fighting this issue for a long time. Most recently, in July of this year, he appeared before the Queensland Parliament inquiry into their euthanasia law, which passed last month. So joining me now is uh, David. David, welcome. Thank you for being with me this afternoon. Good to be here. Good to be here. David, uh, Alex Greenwich uh, today in the New South Wales Parliament gave his second reading speech as he introduced this bill. And for my podcast listeners, um, it's uh, Thursday the uh, 14th of October, so there'll be a delay for some of you. But for those on the live stream, this happened this morning. It's hot, hot off the press. In his speech, David, um, Greenwich said uh, as part of his rationale for why we need voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia, he said, stories of people who died choking on their bodily fluids, who slowly suffocated to death, whose tumours grew so large they broke bones, who were unable to swallow, whose bodies were covered in painful open sores, 
whose organs shut down, causing symptoms like violently regurgitating feces, and whose bodies slowly wasted away. I think any parliamentarian hearing that would be saying, uh, when can we vote? Mm. Well, he, here we go again with Alex. I think his gay marriage argument was that if we don't bring gay marriage in, then people are going to suicide and suffer. It's cheap. It's cheap and nasty. Um, what they're des- what Alex is describing is, you know, what you might expect in a third world country with no medical care. Um, you, what what you what those individuals need is highly trained, highly skilled palliative nurses and doctors who can manage those awful symptoms. Um, so, 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 David, you're saying it would be unusual for someone at end of life to be suffering those pretty extreme and horrendous things that were just described in the parliament yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, no, but there's two points to make. The preliminary point is that at least in this, on this subject of euthanasia and, and assisted suicide, at least, Lyle, unlike some other subjects, there is goodwill on both sides. So people like Alex and those who want to bring in um, euthanasia, uh, generally they're motivated because they've seen someone like this die a bad death. And that's a really sincere motivation. You can respect that. There's other people who are just philosophically motivated, you know, through radical autonomy and so forth. But most people in the public would think, well, gee, you know, grandma suffered and why couldn't we just, you know, put her out of her misery and be kind about it? That's the sort of mentality. So you can respect that. You can't really respect the -the over-the-top hype and uh, sort of, you know, uh, medical porn that Alex is putting out. I mean, um, everybody can be helped massively, massively with palliative care in our lucky country, maybe not in poor countries, but here, massively. Most people will have a beautiful, peaceful last days and weeks, most people. Everyone should expect, with proper care, at least a tolerable dying. But but some cases are really hard. As I always say to my medical students, Lyle, we cannot get rid of all suffering in dying any more than we can get rid of all suffering in childbirth. We can't do it. We can get very close. And we can't get rid of all suffering all through life with injuries and illness and, and, and emotional grief, um, satur- you know, life saturated with suffering. That's what we're made of. Uh, and it's somehow a bit odd to think that we must demand zero suffering, zero, hmm. or else bring in medical homicide, bring in assisted suicide. Why? Because we demand zero suffering. Well, we can't demand zero suffering. What we can demand is that our rich and lucky country facilitates the best palliative care to every corner of our state and our nation. That's that's our duty and that's our right. And when that is done, I promise you, <laughs> I remember patients who've asked for euthanasia and then they've come in in pain. We sorted the pain. And the next day, I remember one Dutch lady, strangely enough, saying, look, it's a different world, doc. It's a different world. Yeah. She didn't want it then. Yep. So yeah. a little bit of sobriety, Alex, a little bit less mm. of this medical porn and a bit more fairness as to the reality of our lucky country where most people can expect a very peaceful or at least a tolerable dying and where we can't get rid of the messiness of dying any more than the messiness of childbirth. Isn't that just, isn't that somehow part of our character to bear that last bit? I don't know. It's a hard call. Yeah. It's a hard yep. call. That's no justification to bring in assisted suicide and homicide. Okay. Well, that's that's good to clear that up because he's led uh, this debate uh, in his opening remarks in the parliament with what you've just described as medical porn. It was all very extreme stuff that I just read out there. You're saying that's not the normal way that most Australians no. die. Perhaps in the odd extreme case, someone might die yeah. like that, would, but it would be extremely rare and probably so rare that it would not really even be relevant to a discussion on um, medically assisted dying. Well, it's relevant because there, there is still some suffering, seriously. And, and but, we but can't of that sort of grotesque it. nature of a routine basis, I mean, that's, that's the context. No, you can always, you can always ameliorate suffering so much now, so much, and in the right hands, ex- extraordinarily well mm-hmm. managed and controlled. 
But well, yeah, let's some go to that. Some people don't get the best care. That's true. Some people well, don't. Let's get go to that because because then the next thing that Alex says in his uh, speech, um, he he anticipates, I guess, people like you and I, and particularly people like you who have expertise in palliative care. He says Palliative Care Australia estimates that four percent of patients are beyond its help, and there is evidence that palliative care cannot effectively control ten to twenty percent of end of life symptoms. Now. Now, as you said, um, not everything can be controlled, but th- these are fairly small percentages. I mean, four percent of patients, ten to twenty percent of of um, pain in four percent of people. Obviously, that's significant to those people, but that's not a large cohort. And again, does that justify taking this drastic step, uh, as you call it, of, of introducing medical homicide uh, as as supposed end-of-life health care. I mean, well, do these the, percentages the, warrant this? Well, the size of the percentage I don't think is the determining factor. If the principle is right that Alex espouses, which is that if some, if even one person in the country can't get 100% relief of symptoms, then we must have euthanasia to apply to that one person. That's his principle. It doesn't matter whether it's 1% or 4% or 10% who can't get excellent relief of suffering um the print the, the reason we can't the reason we can't allow euthanasia um, it doesn't depend on perfecting palliative care it, that is not a prerequisite for opposing euthanasia you oppose euthanasia for the far greater grounds of its corruption of the social c- contract if you like between the state and its most vulnerable citizens who will i promise you get the message uh, that this new culture of mercy killing means that, uh, as Bill Hayden, when he was Governor General, said, these are now unproductive burdens and society yeah. deserves to be disencumbered. That's the chief thing, the corruption, intimidation of the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. but also, of course, the corruption of the medical profession who will be yeah. made bringers of death. Yes. And so forth. You, well, if you want to go through, those are the key things. That's the reason you oppose it. Even if, and the second point about Alex's thing, um, what the Palliative Care Australia said, the 4% or the 10%, that's total control. Everybody can be helped greatly, everyone. 4%, you might not be able to help them to our satisfaction and to their satisfaction. That's probably fair call. Hmm. It's tough. David, you mentioned um, patients you've had where uh, they've requested euthanasia because they've been in in pain. um, You've been able to respond to that as a doctor and, and provide some alleviation. I remember during the 2017 debate in Victoria, uh, the palliative care experts who testified before the Victorian parliamentary inquiry, they, they said similar things. They said whenever people were offered proper, proper palliative care, mm-hmm. uh, the requests for euthanasia uh, pretty much dried up to to virtually mm. nothing uh, mm. was what their testimony said. Now, mm. now the public don't know this, do they? They don't, and people think it's only about pain. It's largely about fear. Uh, and when people have the confidence of competent, caring people around them, like these beautiful palliative care units and hospices, they can they can cope with a lot of mm, residual distress, I guess, um, like we have to with every time we're in hospital, every illness, every operation, yeah. whatever, yeah. every broken bone. Yes. But once they have confidence and encouragement and moral support and comfort and frankly you know just strong loving context gee they can um they can change dramatically from fear and demanding hopelessness and death to a peaceful sometimes very beautiful last chapter of their life well well, let's go to that point you mentioned fear um, one of the other things that Alex made much of in his speech, and, and you touched on this at the start of this discussion, uh, back to his um, days as an advocate for same-sex marriage, uh, when mm. he said if you don't give people same-sex marriage, they'll commit suicide. Um, that, that's a slight um, paraphrase mm. of what he was saying, but that's in essence what he was saying. You, you, you create this uh, environment where people feel like there's no other option. Now, he, he played the suicide card again, Uh, in this debate, and uh, he said that data from the National Coronial Information System shows that in New South Wales at least 20% of suicides uh, in people over 40 are associated with terminal illness. That accounts for over 10% of all suicides. Now, again, um, 
people over 40 with terminal illnesses, uh, they're going to be in a state of um, mental distress, um, fear. Uh, yeah. And again, um, you know, is this a rationale for medically assisted suicide for euthanasia? Uh, because Whenever. if these people are given that that love and support that you talk about, uh, that surely is going to take away the desire to take one's own life. Well, above all, you need to find out if these people have a, a brain depression because if you have a brain depression due to the severity of the illness or the severity of the treatment or the existential grief and burden of, of knowing that one's reaching the end of your life, this can tip a vulnerable person into a brain depression. Now, once you have a depleted brain, a, a depressed brain, you no longer think like you should think. We are not ourselves. And at that point, most suicides are because of depression of the brain. They're not some great heroic, you know, um, uh, uh, autonomous act. They're actually brain depression. Yeah. And so it's our absolute duty to find out if this person's depressed. And can I say one of the most shocking aspects of this bill is that it does not require yeah. the assessment by a psychiatrist. Incredible. Many overseas girls do. It's a shocker yeah. because everyone who wants to take to end their life is medically depressed till proven otherwise, and this yeah. bill will not prove them otherwise. Um, well, well, that's and, right. You, you'll remember um, Dr. Philip Nitschke and uh, the original euthanasia bill passed in the Northern Territory uh, that you were involved in seeing overturned. I mean, that did require... Uh, psychological and psychiatric uh, examination. But um, later, Nitschke testified, I think before the Tasmanian parliamentary inquiry, that he, he saw those things as an impediment, um, that unnecessary. Yeah. He wanted them out of the way. And, of course, Alex Greenwich Bill has delivered what, um, what Dr Death himself uh, wanted taken out of the way as an unnecessary impediment. Yeah. This is more medically negligent, this bill, than even the Northern Territory Bill. Wow. It's, it's so reckless. No psychiatrist involved. Incredible. You can't even protect the patient from themselves, from their own brain depression. Some, some doctor who may know, not know the first thing about assessing depression in a, in a complex illness is, is allowed to proceed with this under this well, well, then in that case, if you can't protect them from themselves, how, how do you protect them from uh, family members who might have nefarious motives? I mean, elder abuse is a growing phenomenon, mm. unfortunately, in this country. Uh, if there's an inheritance at stake, if granny's a little bit vulnerable there, um, the power of suggestion mm. uh, can be very, mm. very powerful. Yes, Yes, and, and this bill, like the Queensland bill, you know, allows for the perfect crime because it talks big about not allowing any coercion or any pressure, but it has no mechanism, no mechanism. How do you prove it? How do you prove it? Let alone prove it. No, no, it's the perfect crime. It is. This is a new form of elder abuse. This is a new institutional form of elder abuse because by definition society is now bringing a message to the most depressed, vulnerable, old people who already feel they're useless, they are saying, <clears throat> here's the option that society's offering you. Now, I, I challenge you to find a vulnerable old person who won't get the message mm. that their welcome has expired. Yep. Um, this is the great injustice of euthanasia. Horrible. Well, I think a lot of people don't know as well that this bill has a provision for euthanasia to be administered at home. Uh, you can have a, a contact person who uh, has access to where you've stored your poison and, and can help you administer this at home. Again, uh, potentially the perfect crime. Uh, and, and we also know that not everyone dies instantly from uh, ingesting poison. It can sometimes be a slow uh, process and if, if you're at home alone or, or with someone else um, waiting you know, what happens in those situations yep 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 um, it and again the interesting thing is that having suicided at home the bill requires doctors to falsify the death certificate and say it wasn't suicide which again is a curious thing but just that reminds me of the other point when you mentioned the suicide figures that Alex Greenwich talked about um, Okay, so in total, he says 10% of suicides in New South Wales appear to be in the context of a diagnosis of a terminal illness. Yeah. I would say like most 40, of them yeah. would be depression. Yeah. And the other ones, well, I guess 
people of a certain mindset are asserting their liberty to to end their own life, and uh, I can sort of accept that 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 liberty. But why is why is the state meant to approve suicide for that ten percent, but not approve suicide for the other ninety yeah. percent? Yeah. Because other, I promise you, those other ninety percent could be even more distressed, suffering even more existential angst and despair yep. Yep. than the over forty-year-olds with a terminal illness. But are we now going to say, look, the state's going to support and approve all suicide, or only, or only this ten percent of suicides? Why? Why? Now, the radically on suicide changes the messaging right. terribly. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the cognitive dissidence is, is, is amazing. Um, we can't have a discussion about uh, euthanasia without uh, talking about the overseas experience. And our friends Alex Greenwich and uh, Trevor Kahn, the Nationals MP, who's another enthusiast for this bill, uh, a number of um, MPs right across the board have co-sponsored mm-hmm. this with Greenwich, uh, Liberal and National, and Labor, of course, and Greens. Um, but uh, they constantly assert that there's no slippery slope and they ridicule that argument and i always say well you know that they say that all the while putting greece on the slope uh but you've only got to look at um belgium and and holland uh, to see how this has really morphed over the last 10 or 20 years that uh euthanasia has been in existence there yeah well my ancestors are sort of holland area so i'm ashamed to say that belgium and holland are the great examples it's very simple for people to to understand Belgium brought in a euthanasia law similar to the New South Wales proposed law in 2002. You had to be terminally ill, you had to be in intolerable suffering and so forth. Within a decade, Belgium has approved euthanasia for cases such as anorexia, bipolar disorder, chronic fatigue syndrome, deafness blindness, and there's a fellow called Nathan Fairhelst who was 43 and he'd had a couple of sex change operations which didn't work and he was terribly distressed by his sex change operation. So he asked Dr. Vim Fairhelst, uh, sorry, Dr. Vim Distelmans to perform euthanasia and he did. He did. Nathan qualified for euthanasia in Belgium because of distress over his sex change operations at 43. Now, if you don't want to call it a slippery slope, call it an ever-expanding circle of criteria because that is the evidence. You can't turn your eyes away from the evidence of ever-expanding circles of criteria. It was it was Paul Keating uh, back in 2017 who said that, of course, of course um, the, the laws will be liberalised once you cross this Rubicon. Of course, they will be liberalised, and yeah, naturally. I mean, you get you get it over. Alex's bill has taken out a few of the prickly things that you know made people choke on the Queensland bill because he wants to get it through. Once it's through, of course, you'll expand it. If there's a right to die, if there's a right to access socialised suicide, then who are you to limit that right? Of course, it expands. Yeah. So people would understand they're buying a package deal here. It's not just the Oh, the terminally ill and terrible pain. Not at all. It's a, it's a why, why do you think it's so hard for this sort of discussion that you and I are having to be held in the, in the public square? Most of the public are not aware of the nuances of this debate. It's just seen uh, in fairly simple terms of, well, you know, people suffer. We might as well let them be put out of their misery. We do it to animals. In fact, John Barillaro, the former mm. Nationals uh, leader here mm. in New South Wales, you know, said this is what we do down on the farm, you know. Well, why, mm. you know, we, we should do it to humans as well. And, and there's a yeah. certain yeah. resonance with that sort of obscene logic. Um, and, and, of course, it's it's popular in, in all opinion polls. Uh, and yet this this will probably sail through the parliament, certainly through the lower house and, and probably through the upper house uh, over the next week or two. Um, but the granularity of the debate that you and I are having discussion will be lost on most of the public and, and it won't well, be until several years down the track when we realise we've got all these wrongful deaths. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, Barilaro's yeah, trivial response. I mean, adults used to run the show in the West. Mm-hmm. They used to. Now, now we have these small-minded people. But t- go back 
1994 was my favourite parliamentary intervention anywhere, and that was the British House of Lords. And this committee had started off largely in favour of euthanasia, but they came back unanimously against it. And there's just two famous quotes from the House of Lords that I'll never forget. This is after, what, 31 years. And the first one was this serious assessment of what it means to overturn the very foundation of law. The foundation is the prohibition of intentional killing. So the House of Lords said no matter how moved we were by the stories we heard and the patients we interviewed, they said this, nothing we heard could justify overturning the prohibition of intentional killing, which is the cornerstone of law and of social relations, end quote. Now, these parliamentarians are there, surely, in a professional capacity to defend the cornerstone of law. And this bill will shatter a cornerstone. And they think, oh, it's all right. We do it to sheep, so let's do it to us. You know, this, sheep are not able to be corrupted like human beings, Mr. Barillaro. Your sheep and their society of sheep is not the same as a society of humans. We need restraints on abuse. We need cornerstone of law and we need we need a medical profession that is protected from itself, protected from corruption by being given this horrible power to end lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on that, we go to Holland because in Holland we know from this remarkable series of confidential government surveys where the doctors were never identified, we've known that before their euthanasia law and after their euthanasia law in 2002, hundreds and hundreds of patients in Holland are put to death by euthanasia, by doctors, without their consent every year. And the most recent figures from a couple of years ago were still three to 400. Yeah. That's such a well-known statistic. Yeah, sorry. Even when the patients patients could have given consent. See, yep. doctor knows best. Yep. But they they, think this, Australians would be, better would be horrified. There. Australians would be horrified if they knew that that's what was happening. And I remember yeah. Um, yeah. when I was with Australian Christian Lobby, we put that in one of our submissions. And uh, Bob Brown, the, the then Greens leader, questioned us. Uh, he was a euthanasia enthusiast, mm. of course, and did all he could to try and bring in euthanasia mm. over many years. Mm. And um, he, he doubted it. And, and so we gave him the evidence. And of course, you, ne- you never heard back mm. from them. They, you know, mm. Reasonable people, when <laughs> one of your key points is refuted, uh, it was funny because it concede. It was in 2008 in one of these Senate inquiries, and Bob Brown asked me directly, Was there a change in Holland after euthanasia was legalized? Did that bring these underground deaths up and out into the open, right? Because this is the argument bring euthanasia yeah. Yeah. out into the open and these underground, quiet euthanasias. Will, will cease. And I was able to give him the stats from the Remelink report from only the year before, 2007, which said since legalisation there has been no change, no detectable change in the proportion of patients or percentage of patients euthanised without consent. Because if doctors have been corrupted um, and were prepared prepared to you know do euthanasia when it was illegal, they're going to be far more comfortable and relaxed about getting away with it when it's legal. So don't corrupt the medical profession. Do not give us a power that we cannot live with. And can I give you one more vital thing on that line? Please. This is, otherwise, I don't forget this one. When I was at the hospice in Brisbane, there were two psychiatrists, Brian Kelly and Frank Varghese, were were associated with this. They wrote a brilliant um, clinical letter in the journal, some psychiatric journal, and they said this. They said, You may be able to protect patients from themselves under euthanasia by insisting on a psychiatry assessment, but you will never be able to protect patients from the unconscious and indeed sometimes conscious wishes of the doctor for the patient to die and thereby relieve everyone, including the doctor, of distress, end quote. Please, people. Realise the darkness that we all hold within us. Do not corrupt your 
doctors by giving them this power. Yeah. David, um, uh, one final question, and uh, there's so much more we could still unpack and uh, so appreciate your forensic mind and the, the <laughs> grasp of detail. And this, this question goes to that, I guess, in that you've been involved in probably every parliamentary euthanasia debate uh, as a submitter, uh, often as a witness at parliamentary and Senate inquiries. Um, we're, we're facing the prospect now of the, almost the last domino falling in, in New South Wales. There's still the, the, They'll find a way to get the mm. ACT and the Northern Territory on board, mm. but the last of the, the states uh, looking like it's going to fall, uh, unless there's a miracle in the upper house. I understand the numbers there are tight, but it's not looking good. Um, how does this make you feel? Um, you, you've spent 30 years or more campaigning and been one of the most uh, important uh, voices in this space in terms of expert knowledge. Um, where, where to for pro-life people uh, now? You know, what, what word of encouragement <laughs> can you give to mm. our people mm. uh, who have followed mm. this debate, who have supported people like yourself, who have drawn mm. uh, great sustenance from your argument and your voice in the public square? Um, where, where does what, what guidance would you give those of us now who care deeply about these things, having seen them lost? Mm. We, we, keep, we must keep caring deeply about these things. And the, the, the image, if you like, that applies here with our loss of euthanasia is the same image that applies when we lost the abortion law, when we lost the marriage law. In the last quarter century, every sane and just law about life and about key institutions and about justice has fallen. So we are now entering essentially a cultural dark age. And like the old dark ages of the 500s through to 1000 AD, the only thing that preserved what we love and care about were the old monastery walls, if you like, yeah. fortified areas where we can continue to preserve what we love uh, we, we can create a domain where our children and our children's children will still be able to grow up relatively innocent, relatively sane and happy. The cultural task for the churches, if you like, and for all people of goodwill is to hold back on this, this darkness and this destruction, you know, destroying the foundations of law. Alex managed to destroy the foundations of family with his yeah. destruction of the man-woman-child unit. Um, he's destroyed the sanctity of life with his abortion to birth. And the other parliaments, they're just following. It, we're, we're deeply sick. We're probably terminally ill uh, right now, Lyle, but always there's green shoots. So the task is for the, hosp the church hospitals, the church institutions, the communities of um, around the beautiful uh, culture of palliative care, even if it's not Christian culture, it's it's this deeply humane culture. We must defend our turf. We must mm. not let the culture of euthanasia encroach upon hospices yeah. or on hospitals. We must fight back in this bill where it says Christian nursing homes must allow euthanasia on their site. Any MP worth his salt will fight for that to be got rid of. Yeah. Preserve those walls, Lyle. Retreat. No, no. Hold we, we, and then for a thousand years, it'll all be good again. Hopefully not quite a thousand years, but uh, we need to, as our the, the great writer that I know you and I appreciate, Rod Dreyer, says, so we must live not by lies. It's time for us to be mm -hmm. uh, dissidents. Yep. Uh, as Greg Sheridan said, maybe throw the odd metaphorical Molotov cocktail, but we're fighting a guerrilla war now. But nonetheless, we, we keep fighting and uh, we know that the truth is on our side and it will eventually out. And I guess that's what gives us hope. We've been here before in history, so um, I'm sure... Yourself and uh, so many others will continue to be cheerful warriors uh, for the truth. Uh, Dr. David Van Gen, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, really appreciate it today. Plenty of time when you're in lockdown in New South Wales, Lyle. <laughs> I've been locked down for a month. I can't get home. Plenty of time. <laughs> well, we appreciate you, you making it available today. God bless. I hope you found that helpful. Also this week, I caught up with the next generation of pro-life heroes peacefully flying the flag for the dignity of human life outside the New South Wales Parliament in Macquarie Street. Take a listen. Well, g'day. It's great to be with you coming from uh, Macquarie Street uh, outside the New South Wales Parliament in Sydney, where there is a peaceful demonstration going on uh, about the Alex Greenwich uh, Euthanasia Bill, which sadly uh, both sides of politics are going to allow to be 
debated uh, probably starting today. And I've got with me here Joseph and Sophia, who are committed pro-life people, uh, uni students. Sophia, why are you out here protesting today? Um, I think it's just, it's sad to see the lack of value of life, um, to see a real dignity in um, living your days and taking each day as something to be grateful for rather than something to be uh, ending. And I think, yeah, just really opposing um, this, this sort of lack of really treating the mental health and treating uh, the person for who they are and the value that they, they have. Yeah, well, that, that's right. In, in, we know that people who are facing end-of-life issues or who are uh, chronically ill might have a terminal illness. We know that mental health is a real issue here. And yet, if you're, um, if it's suggested to you, as this Alex Greenwich bill allows a, a doctor or a nurse to suggest to someone who's vulnerable that maybe they should consider uh, ending their life with a, a lethal injection, what, what do you think that's going to mean to someone in a vulnerable posi uh, position? And you were telling me off air that uh, you know you you're involved in aged care. Yes. What, what effect is this going to have on vulnerable people? Yeah, I think um, this really places, especially for the elderly, it really places um, that their lives aren't as valuable as others. Um, I think in Australia we're really trying to work towards improving our mental health care and things like that and this is a backward step definitely um it's really neglecting a lot of the mental health issues that are going on and um you know just kind of finding a, a quick fix for maybe something that yeah really should be treated rather than just cancelled and, and gotten rid of we, yeah. we see all these um reports in the newspaper whenever there's a euthanasia bill coming up um really sad stories of you know the man who was in the telegraph the other day who's yeah. you know, got cancer he's going to die mm. and he wants to have the right to to end his life mm. and, and he says that the suffering's terrible but mm. the, the, the thought that comes to my mind if his suffering is terrible that's um that doesn't mean he needs poison mm. it, it means he needs proper palliative care yeah. yeah i think this is a real yeah like i said a real backward step for palliative care and and a real backward step for mental health i think um yeah, there are definitely ways to treat pain and suffering and I've seen it time and time again. Like, uh, There's so many different medications and treatments and things these days that, yeah, I think this is really just, it's a neglect, it's a neglectful step for the aged care population. Um, and yeah, any, and eventually it could possibly be a backward step for all people who are suffering chronic illnesses um, at all ages as well. So, yeah. so, so Joseph, coming in a bit closer, Joseph, um, uh, you're out here, you're obviously very committed as well. Do you think the politicians really understand that there are ways that people can die with dignity, with their pain relieved, uh, that they don't need to resort to, to poison? Yeah, um, I think the, the, the topic of euthanasia is sold as, as Sophia said, the quick fix, the, the, the magic pill. Um, that will fix problems. Uh, I believe it's the duty of the government and the politicians to be uh, the ones who are trying to protect the most vulnerable of our society. And who more vulnerable than those sick and suffering um, who should who should be allowed to die with, with dignity, uh, with respect. Um, and it, it should be our duty to show compassion to those uh, who are suffering and in pain. Um, and exactly as Sophia said, this is uh, stepping way backwards from going from... Uh, caring for those who are most vulnerable to, um, uh, to uh, allowing a nurse to suggest um, euthanasia to someone who is, uh, who is close, to, close to death or suffering. Um, what an abhorrent, uh, what, 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 what a terrible society to live in if, they, if, that was, if that was to be something that was practiced. Um, it's yeah. absolutely despicable. It's a very important issue and that's why we're here standing for life, standing up for those most vulnerable in our society, mm -hmm. saying that uh, their, their lives are just as valuable as all of our lives mm -hmm. and it, 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 it is not, it is no way um, uh, acceptable to be suggesting or, or, or to proposing um, death um, by, by pill or by injection to someone who's suffering um, as, 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 as the way out and uh, we just don't believe that, that that's, the, that's not on at all. Yeah. Why do you think the um, general population think that, uh, because we, we know that euthanasia has a lot of support, polling shows that, um, but they're often fairly ill-informed questions or, uh, or you know, very, very basic questions. Why do you think the public doesn't understand that suffering can be relieved, that people can be made comfortable, that people can die with dignity without having this overlay of, of um, you know, assisted dying or assisted suicide as part of our healthcare protocols? Yeah, it's uh, a good question. Why is there so much uh, support in the in, in the general public for such a 
such an act as euthanasia. Mm. Um, I think I think that, uh, that those suffering and those uh, who's close close to death, it is quite a uh, intimate topic and emotional one for a lot of mm. people. I know uh, for myself, I've had uh, members of my family quite close to me who have passed, and it has it's 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 almost uh, it's quite quite a full on experience to be with someone as they're on death's door. Um, but uh, I, I agree 100% that palliative care in Australia is great and it's getting better, and that should be the direction that we are heading towards yeah. as a state together. Yeah. And that uh, to the, the idea of, of euthanasia um, that's sold by the media and, and, and is generally accepted is, is not actually the true, it's not a true image of what euthanasia actually is. Yeah, you, I think um, as well, like there's just a lack of knowledge. I think it's, it is, it does seem quite appealing. It does seem like a quick fix and an, an easy solution, but you just have to look a little bit deeper into it. And actually, uh, if you look at the other countries overseas, like uh, it just escalates and, you know, more things are asked for it and, and it ends up being something that is, it's very harmful and, and um, yeah, short-term solution for, yeah, definitely not a, a, a long-term problem. You're in aged care, um, Sophia, and you're about to become a registered nurse. Yeah. Um, do you think there's awareness in the aged care sector about the pal- the full suite of palliative care options? I think um, palliative care isn't greatly achieved in aged care. I think that um, it's only really brought in very last minute and, you know, absolutely when they're at the dying stages. Um, I think it's there is a shift. There is a shift of focus to addressing palliative care earlier on in the process rather than right at the very end of care. Um, I think that's changing, but it needs to be definitely. Do you think that'll be set back if if this law is passed and Mm. the option of giving someone uh, poison or a lethal pill Mm. if that becomes part of the healthcare protocols will that set back the uh the 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 need for you know greater palliative care Mm. uh funding and Mm. and availability yeah i definitely think so i work in the dementia area so i think it's something that can be very much abused as well like by family members by um you know deciding that you know right now they want to end their own life but then later they you know they don't so i think it is really this bloodline um and yeah definitely i think it will um reduce the need for palliative care but um in a horrible way yeah and and definitely not treating the problem at all yeah Uh, it's grotesque and and um joseph what's been the reaction outside parliament house here as you've been staging this peaceful process process um your banner there says compassion never kills great slogan um what's been the reaction from mps staffers and the public yeah, uh, we have had some MPs who've walked past who are strongly uh, with us um, on this issue, which is really encouraging. Uh, but again, uh, there are there are MPs on the opposite side of the bill. Uh, there is a large selection of uh, parliamentarians who are not really sure on the bench uh, in the middle right now. Um, and from from the general public, uh, it, it is a little bit of a polarizing issue. This issue of uh, euthanasia, and I think one reason for that is that there's a lot of emotion, and um, it's quite close to some people's hearts when uh, family members or people close to them have had have had to pass away. And um, I think just again, uh, this the the idea that euthanasia is, is the magic pill that solves this problem, yeah. and no pain or suffering will come to that person, and it's the dignified way to die. It's completely false, and is a lie sold by today's uh, today's media a lot of the time. Um, uh, that's why we're out here today and um, uh, some people have recognised that absolutely agree with us which is great to see uh, but this is such an important topic um, we definitely don't want to be living in a society where death is, is put on a pedestal as as a dignified way to die by assisted suicide so that's why we're here today yeah uh, good on you for being here now I, I don't want to be pessimistic but also realistic we've seen Queensland just last month pass some yeah. um, euthanasia laws uh, Victoria South Australia Tasmania you know it's falling like dominoes after 30 or 40 years of you know of stopping this it's suddenly now falling over Um, it doesn't look great here for New South Wales in the next week or two uh, we could see the parliamentarians vote for this if that happens if we do lose this um, and let's hope we don't but if we do what will you do Sophia will you um, continue the fight I think I'll always continue to fight. I think um, it's something that I can advocate for, for you know, just to educate people on what this actually is. I think that's something that I've I've learnt personally as well. Um, the more you dig into it, the more you realise how much of a slippery slope this is and how um, horrible this can end up being uh, as a society. You know, it starts off really strict and, and really you know uh, tight and, and really specific, but then it ends up being something that can just go uh, really downhill really fast. And yeah, of course, I would definitely continue the fight I think um, 
yeah by educating my fellow you know nurses and and doctors and medical staff i think that's one way we can really you know advocate for this and and learn about all the different effects of this that's really encouraging to hear and i'm sure history will show you're right we'll start to hear the same sort of horror stories that we hear out of belgium and holland and oregon and all these other places that have had it for years so we're going to learn our lesson the hard way joseph um uh good on you for being you know helping coordinate this now both of you are uni students you're with life sources australia as well as life choices my apologies um it's great to see so many fantastic um uh pro-life organizations and of course right to life new south wales uh, are organizing the the protest here today but uh just tell us about life choices that's the organization rebecca gosper uh heads up she's uh amazing um you guys are doing incredible work um just tell us what what you're doing to reach a younger generation for the pro-life cause yeah, thanks. Uh, so I'm, I'm part of Life Choice. Uh, I'm part of Sydney Uni Life Choice, and uh, Life Choice is a society at most uh, every major university in Sydney and around Australia. Um, and we are a group of students who uh, are proclaiming boldly the pro-life message. Uh, we believe that it's a really important message for people of all ages um, to acknowledge. Uh, and we do so on campus um, uh, when we're not in lockdown uh, by having stalls, having conversations. We really do just want to um, educate and and have conversations around the truth of the issues uh, surrounding pro, uh, pro-life such as abortion and euthanasia and I think one of the biggest issues today is that um, it is, is understanding what these processes actually are and what the process as Sophia said what the process of euthanasia actually entails actually digging into that ha- opening that conversation and, and, and explaining and, and, and discussing together what it really is and once um, its face is revealed understanding the, the evil of the action itself yeah well, uh, Joseph and Sophia, uh, good on you for what you're doing here, for your commitment and for your ongoing commitment to this cause. Uh, it gives us a lot of hope and um, thanks very much for speaking to us uh, today. Thank you so much. God bless Thank you. you as well. Thank you. I'm sure you'll agree that our future and the future of the movement is in safe hands. And you can't read this book that I've got the privilege of launching tonight without understanding the transformative impact of that deep Christian faith. For my podcast listeners, that was the voice of none other than the great John Howard, former Prime Minister of Australia. One of the best things you and I can do to grow our Christian faith is to learn from those who have gone before us. Reading Christian biographies is a wonderful way to help deepen our faith. So I've got a really expiring book recommendation for you. A Christian leader of courage and character who has shaped my life is well-known Australian Christian entrepreneur Tony McClellan, of whom John Howard was just speaking. During my years at Australian Christian Lobby, Tony was a member of the board and was chairman during my initial years as managing director. We have remained a friend since I left in 2018, and I was privileged to be asked to comment on an early manuscript of his new book, A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity. Tony's is an incredible rag to riches story. It's a yarn about a boy from the bush who achieved tremendous success only to discover that in gaining the whole world, uh, that actually meant nothing if you don't keep your soul. Like so many people who come to faith later in life, Tony brings an incredible perspective about what Jesus has saved him from and what Jesus has saved him for. His journey through failure, faith and success provides valuable life lessons. The book is co-authored by Nick Cater, a prominent public intellectual and columnist for the Australian newspaper and executive director of the Liberal Party think tank, the Menzies Research Centre. Uh, The book is available from Wilkinson Publishing. The website is on your screen. In early November, I'll be conducting a sit-down interview with Tony. You won't want to miss that. Well, that's it for Macquarie Street for this week. Thanks so much for your company and until next week, God bless.